Welcome to episode five of Take My Advice, in which I interview leading thinkers about the future of work and our place in it. Let me quickly rewind eight months to the start of the first lockdown in this strangest of years. My wife and I, like many people, were about to begin what was definitely the most challenging period of our parenting lives. Schools had shut, work was uncertain, and it was a really anxious time for many people. A couple of weeks before, I'd ordered a copy of a book called Parents Who Lead, which applies leadership principles to the ways in which you manage your personal life. Well, sometimes in life, things drop in your lap at exactly the right time, and so it was the case with this book. As with so many great books, I can immediately see ourselves in the story, which in this case was the value of applying long-term thinking to what is often the most difficult of jobs. As well as the obvious focus on the relationship with your kids, it also provides an incredibly useful framework for you to consider how much of your time you'd like to spend focused on family, work, community and yourself and to create a strategy to help all of that in reality. Now as you might imagine when I decided to start recording this podcast, Alyssa Westring, one of the authors of this book with Stu Friedman, was among the first people I contacted and I'm delighted and honoured to bring you this brilliant conversation today, which should fill you with insights and optimism whether you're a parent or not. Thanks as ever for listening and if you haven't already, please check out my newsletter Future Work Life for related insights, including last week's edition which prefaces this episode. So on to my chat with Alyssa Westering, which unfortunately included yet another Zoom interruption and meant we had to re-record the second half. Thankfully, Alyssa is as generous with her time as she is with her writing. So I hope you enjoy. Alyssa, thank you very much for joining me. Uh, I thought the easiest place for us to start today would be for you to give us a little introduction in your own words uh, about what you do and uh, how you've ended up doing what you do. Sure. Yeah. So my background is that I'm an organizational psychologist. So broadly, I study the psychology of people at work, things like motivation, teamwork, decision making. But I've spent the majority of my career studying two key areas, women's careers and women in leadership, and then work-life integration, how people manage the different roles of their life. And sometimes those things come together and I study them both, and sometimes I study them separately. And I've spent the last few years focusing specifically on the experiences of parents and generally working parents, trying to manage all of the different parts of their life while being engaged in their careers and in their homes. And I'm a professor at DePaul University in the Department of Management and Entrepreneurship. Brilliant. And just jump straight into something you said there. I think mm-hmm. almost everybody listening will be familiar with the phrase work-life balance, but yes. you said work-life integration. So what's the, the reason for that? Why do you use Yeah, that? that's a great question. And I tend not to get too hung up on the lingo because I think in general, whether you say balance or in integration or synergy, whatever it is, people know what it feels like to have all of the parts of their lives working together or at least they have an idea of what it might feel like. So integration means having the pieces of your life work together in a way that aligns with your values and priorities. It doesn't necessarily mean that you're combining everything or separating everything. Just like balance doesn't mean that you're dividing your life into chunks and spending exact equal amounts of time in each domain. So I prefer integration, but it's not a strong preference. I mean, if you were to look at a literal definition of the word, it'd feel that like life is generally a bit more integrated at the moment, certainly, but perhaps than it would have been nine months ago. Exactly. Yeah. So 
in the research on work-life topics, there's research on how people manage the boundaries in their life from, a, from segmentation to integration. So when you think about your life being integrated now, the fact that your kids are at home and your work, at least for me, my kids are at home and your work's at home and everything's at home, that would be integration in that sense. But the integration of work-life integration more broadly has to do with how you're weaving together the different pieces of your life to form some sort of coherent whole that works for you. And your book that was released earlier this year, and I believe it was released almost exactly before lockdown started. So in the March US. 10th, yes. <laughs> and, and actually, look, I'll be honest at this stage, I found your book Parents Who Lead so useful in the early stages of I lockdown. Love yeah, I think my wife and I, like many people, were so stuck in that moment and so focused on just trying to get through every day it was really mm -hmm. difficult to kind of see the wood from the trees and actually your book really helped us take a step back and start thinking a little bit more long term and perhaps also make us feel a little bit better about the sense that we weren't doing a fantastic job of combining <laughs> all these new elements and new demands on us so I mean would you introduce parents who lead and explain the the reason for uh, writing the book and, and also your, your relationship with Stu Friedman as well Sure. So the book is about taking a leadership approach to how you think about the different parts of your life. And it's specifically about applying that to being a parent. So I've worked with Stu Friedman, who teaches a course and runs a company called Total Leadership, which is about integrating the different parts of your life, but it's really broadly applied. So it's not specific to the experiences of parents. And what we were hearing over and over again was parents saying, this is great stuff, but can you give me something more specific to my own life situation and something that I can do with my partner for people who have a partner? So we spent several years working with dual career couples and their stories are in the book to develop a book that tells the theory of how to be a leader in all parts of your life, but also gives you exercises, activities, and then stories of people who did it and what they learned and what they got out of it. And we didn't expect it to come out at the start of a you know worldwide pandemic, but the timing surprisingly seems to be pretty good because people are longing for something that's not just like hacks. Okay, I can give you a hack for how to manage your inbox and how to sync your calendar with your partners, but something bigger than that, some sort of philosophy, some strategies, some tools for how to move forward through this in a way that's something hopefully greater than just surviving. And for many people, just surviving is the best they can do right now. And I totally get that. But for people who have a little bit of bandwidth to think more purposefully about this moment in their life, it turns out that parents who lead is quite a good fit for many of them. Yeah, definitely. I think the idea that as a couple or as a family that you could have certain values that mm -hmm. you aspire to adhere to and certainly something that kind of true north, uh, that perspective I think is really useful. I think we're, we're more familiar with talking about values nowadays with you know, company values, but I think this idea of having a collective vision is a, a nice one. Perhaps you could give us a couple of examples about how different people that you worked with have approached that. We're really drawing on decades and decades of research about what good leaders do. And, and you mentioned this corporate context. 
a good organization will have a set of core values and a vision of where they want to go, and they use that to make strategic decisions about how to invest their resources. So if we think about our lives, we could think about how we just get through the day to day. But alternatively, if we take a leadership approach, we can use a set of values and a vision of where we want to go to help us make the decisions that inform the day-to-day -day aspects of our lives and even bigger decisions. And what we found is that parents tended to have a sense that this was an important thing to do. It wasn't like we were completely shocking them with the idea of having family values. It's that they didn't necessarily have a, a guide for how to get there or the motivation to pause the to-do list to think about these things, which mm. is, it's really hard to do. So in the book, we ask people to look five, 10, 15 years down the road to think about where they want to go. Talking with parents throughout this pandemic, one of the things I've done is ask people to envision or to think about the end of this, when life gets to go back to normal and imagine themselves looking back at this moment in time, what values do you hope would characterize how you got through this moment? And it might be slightly different than the values that drive you 15 years from now. Things like patience, gratitude, being present, helping our community, those values that in an ideal world we would all embody throughout this pandemic when you highlight them and talk about them and try to come up with creative ways to live them, you get to move out of that just completely reactive space into that more positive, proactive space that you mentioned. Yeah, you mentioned about being present there. I've, I've always talked about that as being a really vital part of kind of having a sense of fulfillment, the, the mm -hmm. idea that you could be present when you're at home. I think, though, I've experienced this to a certain extent, and certainly other people I've spoken to have, where there's actually a big difference between being present in the sense of being in a room or, or frankly in a house with your family and actually being present of mind. Because I think the, yes. the, the sort of paradox of, of what's happened this year is that we've all been there all the time. But of course, yes. because we've got all of these different things going on and different responsibilities, being at home doesn't necessarily mean that we are present. Have you seen that among people that you've been working with? Absolutely. I think having multiple things fighting for your attention at the same time and not really having any clear dividing lines between the different roles that we're playing where we can easily slip out of work and into parenting or out of parenting and into work. It's a lot harder. And I think people are having to be more creative with strategies to help them find those moments of being present in one role or at one time. And we know from our research, from decades of research, that when you are present in a moment, you can get more bang for your buck in that moment. So 30 minutes of attention to a project at work is much more valuable than 90 minutes of distracted multitasking. So there does seem to be a productivity benefit in addition to a quality versus quantity benefit. Yeah. Yeah, I get that as well. I think there's there's, there's been a the, the the prevalence of people sitting on a laptop, perhaps while trying to look after their kids and being on a conference mm -hmm. call, and actually, frankly, neither achieving very much. With little kids, somebody has to keep an eye on them so they don't throw themselves down a flight of stairs. Yeah. Right, that's unavoidable, and you don't necessarily have to give them your full engagement and attention. But if you also set aside, you know, 15 minutes or 20 minutes to read a book 
and be present. Don't beat yourself up for the time where you're just making sure they stay alive and think that you're doing something wrong. Yeah, but then exactly. also focus on the other part. Yeah. And I'll, I'll come back in a moment about these shared values. I'm just, you, you mentioned before a lot of your um, work prior to focusing on parents more generally has been about women's careers. Yes. Have you seen evidence of a imbalance between the responsibilities that men and women are taking on at home? I've seen reports suggesting that there's been higher rates of furlough among women voluntarily, voluntarily often and also just generally despite people have been in you know dual careers that actually often women are taking more of the burden is that something that you've seen yeah so i've probably been reading the same research studies that you have i'm actually launching a few data collections over the next few months to to gather data myself but anecdotally i'm hearing that from many of the women that it doesn't feel fair or that they're frustrated. And I personally experienced it at the beginning. My career is incredibly flexible. So I found that I was doing a lot of housekeeping and cooking and things that weren't necessarily my top interests or priorities at the start of the pandemic. And I was like, oh my God, I feel like I reverted to the 1950s. And for some people that, that may be very fulfilling. For me, it wasn't. And we had to do some work around reallocating responsibilities and talking about things. And I think that the data are exactly what you said, that women are more likely to sideline their careers, step out of their careers, maybe not take a promotion or more responsibility right now. Just returning to the values then. So I know, because I've been through this process, I think when you start thinking about long-term values, there's two things going on. First of all, it's really not something that you do in day-to-day -day life, particularly when you've got young kids, because you're mm -hmm. just surviving a lot of the time. Also, it's inevitable, probably, that when you've been in a relationship with somebody for you know, whatever period of time, that your shared ambitions and goals in life might diverge to a certain extent. Mm -hmm. Do you get situations where it, there's a radical difference between people's goals and long-term values? And what's the resolution around that? And does it always end positively? Or does, are there, have there been cases where actually it's shone a light on perhaps something which was fundamentally intractable in a relationship? So we haven't had anybody get divorced yet that we worked with. So I would say we haven't uncovered anything that was totally a deal breaker. But one couple that comes to mind was the husband was a serial entrepreneur and really liked this idea of starting and selling businesses over and over again. And the wife was working the job that provided the steady income right. and health insurance and all of that stuff. And when they wrote their visions together, he saw himself doing this serial entrepreneurship for the next 15, 20 years. And she was like, oh, whoa, I thought this was just a moment in time that we were doing this to get the business going and to, yeah. for you to then move into a steadier career. And they, in the end, I don't think that they came up with a yes or no answer, but it's certainly, they had to start having some conversations about shared and unique values, particularly around security and risk and excitement and adventure to come up with understanding why this was and wasn't working for them, as opposed to just, the surface level fight about like, you won't do what I want. Why won't you support me in this? 
I guess sometimes there's a sense that we can actually look long term here. There's, there's a reason for this. And actually in the future, we've got all this, you know, fun, exciting things to be to be preparing for and something that we can share again. Yeah, I think once they started to talk about the shared values that they wanted to live in their family, they felt a lot better about it. There was still definitely work to be done. But I think, you know, this idea of, and even for women's careers, I wish it were more gender neutral, but the idea that you don't have to be fully dedicated to all of your career ambitions at equally at every moment of your life, right? That there are times where you can slow down, speed up, shift, change priorities, and that's okay. And to give yourself a little grace and a little freedom, if at this moment during a pandemic, maybe your top priority isn't advancing your career. That's fully acceptable too. And there's a chapter in the book which talks about embracing the four-way view. Can you yeah. talk, talk to us about what that four-way view is, the importance of it, and perhaps you give us a practical exercise or outline a way that we can start thinking about that? Yeah, absolutely. So the four-way view is something that we've been doing as part of leadership development and part of total leadership for for many years. And I've been involved with it for, I think, about 15 or so. And the idea is that if you think about your life in four main buckets, you can start to look at how those buckets relate to each other. So we tend to think of them in terms of career, which is your current role, but also your career goals, your network, your aspirations, um, your home or family, including pets, extended family, partners, children, your community. I think now we have a greater sense of our community, but normally people were like, I don't even know what you're talking about. But that's neighbors, childcare providers, religious organizations, political groups, the world around you, the environment. And then the last bucket is the self bucket, which is mind, body, spirit, physical health, mental health. And when you start looking at your life in those four buckets, you can start to think about where is my time and energy going? And is it aligned with how important each of those four domains is to me and how's it going? And we have a chart people fill out and you can fill it out and then try again four months later to see how things are going. But what we find is it helps people get a snapshot of ways in which their way that they're spending their time and energy might not be fully aligned with their priorities and values. And it's, just a tool to help give clues as to where you might make changes in your life. But it's also a way to start noticing the interconnections. And in Parents Who Lead, we invite both partners to do it. And then to look at your charts and for extra credit, I like always like to say it's extra credit, you write down what you think your partner's for with you is, how they prioritize the different roles in their life. And then look and see, oh, does my perception of my reality match with their perception of my reality? And once you start to look at these four domains in yourself and in others, you can start to come up with ways to make things better, to increase that alignment between what you care about and what you do. And it's probably never going to be perfect, but it gives a, a metric for tracking change over time. Have you seen people's, either people's, desire for a certain balance between those four or the reality change since we you know, entered the global pandemic. I mean, my own experience of this probably would be sacrificing the self a little bit more in, in terms mm -hmm. of those things, which, you know, I know are good for me, like physical 
exercise and regular opportunities to just take a moment, take a breath, a bit of mindfulness. I think you probably have to sacrifice some of that stuff. Have there been any rebalances in the way people have approached it, either consciously or unconsciously? Yeah, I think for parents, the home and family domain, we're probably spending more time than ever because a lot of us can't outsource childcare right now. So that's certainly a common theme. In general, what we tend to see, and this is pre-pandemic as well, is that people tend to give more energy and attention to work relative to its importance, and the community and the self end up getting sacrificed to maintain engagement in family. So the, the self-domain, as you said, seems to become optional when the other things aren't fixable. And what we do with people is we really encourage them to find creative ways to engage with the self-domain that maybe add to the other parts of life, as opposed to saying, oh, well, I have to take an hour away from work or away from family in order to care for my physical and mental health. I've always used the analogy of when you're on a plane and you have the safety announcement and mm-hmm. you, they always say, for the adults, make sure you put your life jacket on before you put it on your kids. And there's a certain mm-hmm. amount of that, isn't there? And that we sacrifice sometimes some of the elements of ourselves. And actually, it's to the detriment, not just of ourselves, but sometimes to our family and to our careers. And I think you have to find that time to focus on yourself, however difficult it seems in the moment. Yeah, I mean, I think that our data certainly supports that idea that smart investments in your mental and physical well-being reap benefits across the board. But also that might, I I feel like whenever I say that people get the impression that, oh, I need to wake up at 5 a.m. to do an hour long workout before the kids get up, right? And to be realistic, maybe it's just taking a walk with the family after dinner. Maybe your mental health needs an hour of reality TV in, in the evenings to think expansively about what you need to do to nurture your physical and mental uh, well-being. Yeah, and you, men- you mentioned the involvement of your family there. There's some really interesting thoughts around how you engage your children in this process. Clearly, mm-hmm. when you've got kids who are teenagers, perhaps they understand the complexities about your life a little more. But yes. when you've got younger children, how do you engage them in a conversation like this? So you you know, what, what is it sort of broad brush strokes? Do you get into very specific conversations around why you're perhaps changing the way that you, you manage your life and manage your time? What sort of practical advice again would you have? Say for me, my kids are eight, five and coming on two. Oh my gosh. <laughs> sure. So first caveat, I don't have teenagers yet. And I hear from the people that I work with that as much as I can offer advice, sometimes they're not always ready to listen. And the same thing is true for two-year-olds, right? That you may want to have a meaningful and deep conversation about family values and vision, but they may not be in the mood to listen. So recognizing the limitations of the people that you're working with and and what their capacity is, but still being proactive about trying, because even if they're not fully engaged, having that conversation, knowing what matters to you still has value. And then just adjusting the conversation to their age and ability level. So when my kids were really little, we just focused on three family values, kindness, fairness, fun, and For a two-year-old, the concept of fairness makes sense, right? They can kind of understand if somebody gets something that they want and they get more or something like that. 
then as children grow and evolve and change their understandings, you can have a more complex discussion about fairness on a societal level, social justice, and you can keep working at talking about values and talking about a shared vision at levels appropriate for your children at each stage, recognizing that just because you talk about it doesn't mean that they're going to fully enhance it or embrace it. But a lot of people are surprised by how thoughtful and creative their children are when they're invited to participate in conversations about what do we do? How do we show our values? What could we try? That there's actually a lot more capacity for understanding and creativity than maybe we give our kids credit for. So uh, there was something else that you mentioned later in the book, which again resonated with me in particular because of the uncertainty that we've had over the past few months. And that was the idea of welcoming surprises. So perhaps you can explain the context of uh, your references to welcoming surprises in the book, why that's an important consideration for all parents. Yeah. So in the book, we talk about the surprises that the parents we've worked with tend to experience when they go through this process of reflecting and engaging with their families and partners and trying new ways of doing things. Because I think many of us, by the time we reach adulthood, think that we understand ourselves. We understand the people we married and live with perfectly. We understand what, our, what matters to us. So the idea that we can be surprised and that we can still learn and grow and change is a really important concept. And a whole theme throughout the book is recognizing our assumptions and challenging them. So we go into our relationships and to everything that we do with a set of assumptions. And rather than just accept the status quo, we invite people to really talk about here's what I think you need from me, whether it's to a boss or to a child. What am I missing? What didn't I get? Same thing. Here's what I need from you. Does this sound right? So always questioning and challenging and being willing to learn and reflect and grow and just being open to this idea that your world may not be exactly as you perceive it in the moment and that there's the possibility for really wonderful surprises and positive change to take place. Yeah, this is the the difficulty, isn't it? Because we can plan our time very well. And to a certain extent, when you're limited with your time, it's useful to to block the day for certain types of tasks. And I certainly try and do that. But what happens when your child needs support, more support with their homework? Or they equally, in normal times, when you get a call from school and your kid's sick and you need to bring them home, it's just having that sort of flexibility in your life is really important. Right. And to not hold so rigidly to your idea of how things should be, that when they don't go that way, everything falls apart, right? If you build some flexibility and understanding into your plans, then you're much less likely to be totally thrown off by a surprise temper tantrum. Yeah, exactly. And, and actually, I think that this theme, frankly, is relevant to anybody, not just parents, isn't it? And I think with, we, you, you talked about the Total Leadership Program earlier on. Mm-hmm. Would you mind explaining how that works, what the relevance is, not just for, for parents, but um, for ed- anybody, any stage in life and their career? Right. So I've been doing this work for almost half my life, working with Stu Friedman, who's my co-author in the book, but who also founded an organization called Total Leadership, where he and I teach people to be leaders in all parts of life and to do the things that great leaders do. And we know what they do from research in the workplace. And what we found is it's a really successful approach for finding greater purpose and greater harmony among all parts of life. So 
shifting your mindset about yourself and about your world to see yourself as a leader and to act as a leader is something that certainly is not exclusive to parents. Young adults can do this. Senior citizens can do this. Everybody can do this and find ways to make things better for themselves and others. And the leadership framework is really a tool to help you take those steps. Yeah. And on that subject, by all accounts, you're, you're an expert, but I'm guessing that you have some of the same challenges that we all have in terms of sticking to uh, some of the, the, the frameworks, the advice that you give in the book. Exactly. So I tell people I've got a PhD in work-life balance. I've been studying this since before I had kids, before I had a job. And that doesn't mean that I get it right all the time. Certainly. It just means that, and I don't have the data to back this up, but I think I might be quicker at noticing opportunities for change, opportunities for growth, needs for conversation. But that's because my mindset is really attuned to all of these ideas. And I've literally been not just a proponent of it, but a student of it for many years. But we all have to take the time to step back, look around, talk, think, experiment. And that's not something that you're ever supposed to be perfect at. The idea is that it's a continuous process. So when I find myself at different phases of the process, my temptation is to be annoyed with myself. Like, how have I not learned this lesson yet? How have I not realized that, for instance, being a little bit more flexible with my idea for how a day should go or trying a new way to help my kids with their homework? Why did it take me days or weeks or months to realize that again? And that's just part of the process. And I give myself a little bit of therapy, right? And say, you're not expected to be perfect at this either. And that's okay. And you're on this journey and you'll always be on this journey. And I find that's really helpful. When I speak to groups of parents, one of the things I always make sure to do is include examples of things that I've tried that have failed. Yeah, nice. Because I think that's what's relatable. That's what makes sense. Not that I am some all-knowing expert who never messes things up, but really to encourage people to try and fail and try and fail again and again. Yeah, because I think there's certainly a perception at work often that people have got it all figured out, but absolutely with parenting. I mean, it's so easy, isn't it, to look at other people and think they're so patient or they approach Mm -hmm. that in the right way. I wish I could do that. But of course, it's like anything. We're all trying our best and some things we get right and some things we don't. Exactly. And to me, good leadership includes sharing that vulnerability, sharing the part of your life that's not picture perfect, whether at work or at home, et cetera. So I really, to me, that's what a model of a good leader does is encourage other people to accept where they are in that journey as well. Yeah. You, I think you pointed me in the direction of Amy Edmondson's great article in the Harvard Business Review a few weeks ago, didn't you? Which talks yes, about I the did. importance of humility and it's yes, so true. Humility and vulnerability and yeah. That's the new model of leadership that we, I think many of us hope to see moving forward. Yeah, absolutely. And obviously you bridge the gap between work and education. You've got corporate clients, you're working with individual parents, you're teaching students through all levels of higher education. And of course you've got young kids. I'm interested yeah. in your take in education and its role in preparing young people for the future of work. Are there any general thoughts you've got on that? Any practical advice that you give kids at different stages of life to prepare them for, frankly, a future which we don't know exactly what the workplace will look like and work life will look like? 
So right now I've got about 100 students that are learning remotely in a pandemic and they're going through their own stuff, right? They are all facing personal challenges, social challenges, in addition to the challenges of being students and many of them working as well. And so I try to incorporate into all of my classes skills that transcend the specific topic that I'm teaching. So any theory, any data that I teach them, they could look it up on the internet in two seconds. So what can I teach them that is a meaningful skill that will help them? And and one of the things I do is I incorporate scientific literacy into all of my classes. So we want students We want the future of our world to look like people who make decisions based on evidence and rather than just going with their gut instinct or what they, what their parents taught them. So I give students the tools of how to do that. How do you read research? How do you evaluate whether a source is trustworthy or not? So that's one of the pieces. And then the other piece really is related to the skills that we talk about developing in the book, which are introspection, communication, and goal setting, all of those personal development tools that will help them be successful as future business leaders, but also be successful in their personal journeys. And I love that I get to play a part in helping them grow into adults, not just into people who know a lot about the topic that I teach. Yeah, absolutely. Alyssa, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for the great book. Thank you for your patience in recording this podcast. My uh, pleasure. No worries. Along the way, but uh, I do appreciate it. Take care. So that was my interview with Alyssa Westring. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you did, as I said at the beginning, please check out my newsletter, Future Work Life, which you can find on Substack or futureworklife.com. And make sure you subscribe to this podcast. I've got some amazing guests coming up over the next few weeks so i'll hopefully see you again soon